you are in the perfect place at the divine time to be touched by a horse. Here's your hosts, Melissa Pierce and Dane Cheek. Hi, everybody. It's Melissa again. It's so nice to be with you. And this is Dane. Good to be with you. Yay. So we're having a lot of fun with the podcast. And thank you so much for reaching out with your feedback. It means a great deal to us. And if there are topics you're interested in, feel free to let us know. Gosh, it's been cold. Yeah, it's been real cold. It's uh, now in the negative figures for (laughs) a couple days and things are freezing. Which we don't do. In the area of Colorado that we live, we have probably maybe a week per year that it's like that. It's not like that very often. Then the sun comes out, warms everything up, and we're kind of on our winter roller coaster so it was so nice the other day it was 60 degrees I was able to go out to the barn and did some gypsy vanner braiding and some grooming and stuff you know I always tell people if you see a picture of a beautiful gypsy vanner and they're really gorgeous and groomed and stuff I guarantee you right outside of that picture is a very dirty human (laughs) it's been a long time getting them (laughs) clean and and hairy for sure getting them clean they're just the best but they definitely are labor intensive that's for sure so what are we talking about today well the other night we were talking about this uh, sweet little story that you had about molly and gobar can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah, I can. So it's a tender story. I, I, I will set up first that my daughter, Molly, Dane and I got together when Molly was about 13 yeah, years old and, yeah. and Kevin, Dane's son, was 11. And so we have a lot of funny stories about those two. But we got together. They loved our coupleship. And so we became this blended family, which doesn't always work. It worked great for our case. Molly's bio dad, her dad actually lives in Phoenix, Arizona. And so she's up in Colorado with me and and we're raising her and she's going down to Arizona to see her dad when she can. And Molly lived to be 24 years old and then she passed away sadly waiting on a four organ transplant. So her life was in and out of hospitals constantly. She was born with a very rare disease and that's what made me start talking about Gobar. So it, it all comes back together in a story in a moment here. But she passed away in 2013. So it was horrible for all of us involved and we're doing fine. And we went through our grief process and I still fall in a hole occasionally about her. Yeah, for sure. But the story we were talking about at dinner that we were sharing is a question that I have. And so Gobar, my paint stallion was a phenomenal three-time world champion stallion who was just an incredible horse both his temperament his physique his personality his athleticism I mean to be a three-time world champion horse and he was an all-around one of the ones that wins the trailer and the saddles and all that stuff you have to be a phenomenal horse to do that and he did and he was my love I just loved that horse so much and had a lot of foals that he sired and we had a great career together but when Molly came along when she was born, what was so interesting was the disease she had paralleled something of his. So in the paint horse breed, there's what's called Tobiano and Overo. They're coat colors. And he was an Overo paint stallion. And he bred a lot of mares. He had a lot of foals. And occasionally for an Overo paint stallion, they can nick a gene anomaly that causes something called lethal white syndrome. And it's very sad. In all the years we bred him, we only had one foal with lethal white. And the foal is born paler than a Palomino, really, really almost 
almost a white color. They have blue eyes, even though the stallion may have dark eyes and the mare may have dark eyes. It has nothing to do with the genetics that way. It has to do with the genetic problem of lethal white. They are pale skinned under their white hair and they live to be anywhere from three hours to 24 hours old and they die. They never nurse. If they do nurse, they can't pass things through to defecate. So what lethal white is, is the foal is lacking the nerve cell, the ganglionic nerve cell in its intestinal tract. So when it nurses, nothing can go through to the other end. So it's terribly painful for the baby. It isn't fixable by a vet. Vets look at lethal whites and shake their heads and get a tear and say, we're sorry. And they walk away and everybody cries until this beautiful foal passes. So they're just gut-wrenching. And like I said, I only had one lethal white, but I learned about the problem and understood the problem. And, you know, as a paint breeder, being a responsible person, did everything I could to make sure we wouldn't replicate that cross and have the problem again. So now I'm pregnant and I'm having my second child, my first. We should talk about our sons too. Our first one is my son, Cody, who's a professional mountain bike rider, just a picture of health, just an amazing, healthy guy. And nine years later, I have Molly. And Molly is born with something called total aganglionic Hirschsprung's disease. It's a mouthful. And I had never heard of that and didn't know anything about it. I was actually hospitalized when I was five and a half months pregnant. She was born a month early and rushed off to the NICU and then helicoptered to another hospital for her first surgery of 27 surgeries she had in her short life of 24 years. And what she was diagnosed with in this Hirschsprung's was lacking the ganglionic nerve cell. And I about fell out of my hospital bed when they told me what she had and what it was, because I just thought, well, how do I have a paint stallion that can create this super rare, freaky gene thing in horses? And then I have the human version as my child. Her father has brown eyes. I have brown eyes. All our grandparents have brown eyes, etc. And she was born with the prettiest blue eyes, (laughs) ivory pale skin, very, very light complected. She did have light brown hair, not white, but she was a human version of lethal white syndrome. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? How do you explain those things? I I don't know. The coincidence is deeper and has more meaning probably than I'll understand in my human self. I always kind of hope when we get wherever we're going after this life that there's an orientation because I have a lot of questions. I want to raise my hand. Excuse me, but God, I need to know how this worked. (laughs) That's one of my biggest ones is that story. So yeah, and we miss her every single day. She was just a wonderful girl and beautiful rider with horses. And she was the one who the horse Bali our earliest episode when we were talking about yeah. Bali that was about born. His head yeah, yeah, weave and weave and weave and anytime he heard my voice. So yeah, she had a lot of great horse stories and was a super good rider and did a lot of things with her short years of her life. So I guess on the other side, the healing side, we've had some people ask about what the horses actually do when they're going through helping people heal with their work. Yeah, like what's it look like? What's the horse actually do? Right, right. Yeah, I agree. 
agree. That's a good that's a good topic for today too. In an earlier episode, I talked about how they just started showing up at our Flagstaff place, which was my I call him my husband instead of my ex husband. He was my husband then, so my husband and I owned the Flagstaff place, and that's where the horses first started showing up showing me that they had something to offer my clients. And what I noticed as a gestaltist was after the clients were with the horses for a while, just it, with a fence between them, they were just casually going down to pet a horse's nose, their energy shifted and they were more accessible for me. So that's kind of where all my work centered after that. So for me today, what I would say to those of you who are asking this question is Every horse that I have the honor of working with has an essential gift. It's what I call it is that horse's essential gift. It is different from horse to horse. And yet there are some categories that I've come across to kind of lump them in, if you will. I have had horses that are truly physical healers. And I've got some great stories behind all of these, but I'll start with just kind of the category. So the physical healers, then there are some that are vibrational or somatic healers. They're actually working on the vibrational system of humans and horses. And we'll chat a little bit about that. There are some that I trademarked equidetector. (laughs) So they're like a truth detector. So they're looking for congruence. And I, I have some incredible equidetectors in my barn right now. Probably the top of the pipeline are those that can sense the emotional walls that people put up. So I think the walls are definitely an interesting part of what they're sensing. And then the very top of the food chain would be the pantomimers. And to me, I've been very blessed to have some incredibly good pantomimers. And so I think probably the thing to do is kind of go through these. Did any of that make any sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. It did. A little bit. Yeah. Because you haven't seen a lot of the work, but you've heard me talk about it. I've heard you talk about it quite a bit, (laughs) but actually haven't visualized a whole lot of it. Right. So you're so sweet. He hears all these stories over dinner when we're out with people and stuff. And so it's kind of fun or my speeches on stage, etc. He's a good sport, this guy, I'll tell you what. So the physical healers are a little bit of a controversy. So let's start there. If people roll their eyes on this podcast, it's okay to roll your eyes. Thank goodness. Every story I tell, I have multiple witnesses. So I'm not a crazy person. I actually have people that have been there and had this happen. So one was an incredible horse I had that you loved as well named Scooter. Oh yeah. Oh he, my he was gosh. A really good horse. Really sweet, yeah, really yeah. kind and sweet. And he had been a rainer and I loved riding him as my rainer. And I've had a lot of horses. I've been really pleased and and fortunate in life to have a lot of horses. There's a few that really grab my heart. And Scooter's probably at the top of that list. He's like my soul pony. But he also helped you along the way to learn the recognition of some of the healing things that the horses do. Definitely. Yeah, he was really good at defining it. And he was kind of a clown. So anytime I'd be speaking in public, he'd be clowning next to me. He's kind of like what Dane's doing now, but the horse version. (laughs) So he'd be clowning next to me. So he, he was just a lot of fun. He was a great, great horse. And so the story that I want to tell is a story about a time in which we had this group come from all over the country to something that I was doing then for a sales team, and we called it Coach Camp. 
And so these people were coming from all over. They owned their own businesses and they were coming with us to improve their salesmanship and their ability to make sales. And that's one of the things that I was training in at the time. So they came out from all over the country and they're there for for coach camp. And there was a really sweet gal there and I'll call her Mary. That wasn't her name, but I'll call her Mary for sake of the story. Mary had been in a car accident and had injured her neck. And after the injury for years after the car accident, her hands didn't have any temperature to them. They were ice cold. Rest of her body had a normal temperature. Her hands did not. And so the circulatory system, right, was damaged in her hands. So if you went to shake hands with her or she touched you or anything, it was noticeable. They were really ice cold hands. So Scooter was standing to one side of the arena while we were working through an experience with the group and she was standing next to him and he reached over and started licking the palms of her hands. Now that's not all that unusual for horses, especially horses in the healing realm, to lick somebody's hands, but he wasn't doing it for salt. He wasn't doing it identifying her as a healer, which is kind of what part of them do. He was doing it obsessively, licking the fronts, the palms, the backs. He went on, she said, is this okay? And I said, absolutely. I would trust this horse with my life. So just let him lick your hands. I thought, well, maybe he was interested in how cold they were. You know, maybe they tasted different because they were cold. I wasn't sure at that moment in time what he was doing, but I trusted him that if he wanted to do that and she didn't mind, let it happen. So we went on with the gig. He probably worked on her hands for 40 to 45 minutes, which is a long time. It's a lot of licking. It is. It is for sure. So it was all done. She went in, she washed her hands. Nobody thought anything of it. That evening we were playing a game and I I think it has three or four different names, but it's that one where you give a gift to somebody and then then there's another gift. And if they want your gift, they can say, Dane, I opened this and I don't want it. I want what you have. Like white white elephant, white elephant, or there's different names for it. But we're a big group and we were having fun and people were getting different things from, you know, pictures to hats to just all kinds of stuff. Well, Mary, this woman had opened this beautiful Laura Birch China mug and she liked it and so she was holding on to this mug and everybody was teasing her, you know, I'm coming after that mug, you know, and just teasing her with it. She had both her hands wrapped around the mug. And we played for probably another 40 minutes while everybody's opening gifts and making the trades. And finally, this one woman, she said, oh, I hate to tell you, Mary, I'm coming for that mug. She walked across the group. She took the mug and gave Mary the gift that she had. They made the trade. But when the person took the mug in her hands, she dropped it on the floor. It broke in a million pieces. And she said, oh, it was hot. And I said, what was hot? She goes, that mug, it was totally hot. We grabbed the piece of china that was on the floor and sure enough, it was hot. I said, how do your hands feel? We started feeling her hands and they were too warm. Now they're too hot. And by the next day, they were a normal hand temperature, the 98.6 or whatever. And they have been ever since. And she's written me Christmas cards and emails and letters, not very often, but every year or two, she lets me know she's doing fine and her hands are still warm and she'll never forget that experience with Scooter. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It was amazing. You remember those camps that we did oh, yeah. early I, I on? I thought you were going to say Scooter may have needed to lick her hands more to cool them off. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're silly. You're silly. No, but I I think that's phenomenal. I have a ton of stories of horses doing these incredible physical changes on people's bodies. So that's one form. It's to me, it's very specialized to certain horses. He has about three more stories like that of physical healing that he wanted to do and that he did. And so it's pretty, pretty remarkable. The other type that we talked about was the wall, which I think is an amazing experience when I have a horse on free liberty and I'm working with a client and the topic of what the client is working on might be something like, you know, will I be able to love again because I've been so hurt by a past relationship. I'm making that as an example. So had a woman named Lisa, actually, who worked with a sweet, sweet little horse of mine named Higgins. We were at my Arizona facility and Lisa was working on two different heartbreaks that she had. One was at that time, her son lived with her ex and she wasn't getting to see him because he was out of state. She had a lot of pain around that. And the other was in a past relationship that was very painful for her. So she had built this wall around herself, but she didn't say that. She didn't put that in words. So I have her in the round pen. We've done a piece of gestalt on both of those topics. And I place her in the round pen with Higgins. And I ask her to stand still on the opposite side of the pen to allow him to come toward her if he chooses to do so, to come toward her and to bring him in with her open heart with love. So he walks about halfway across the round pen and slams on the brakes, ears up, looks at her like he ran into a wall is the only way I can describe it. And she and I did some more work, some more gestalt work around the wall and what this horse was experiencing with this wall. She was able to emotionally, physically, somatically, and in every way, take the wall down a little bit. And when she did, he came about three feet closer and then he stopped again. Well, at one point she says to me, I don't understand because I feel like I'm a very loving person. And I said, oh, wait a minute, Lisa, you are. You're extremely loving with the outpouring and the outgo of love. It's are you able to receive? Does it feel safe for you? And are you okay to receive? And she broke down and cried and really owned for herself that that's where it was, was letting her partner, letting her friends, letting people love her was very difficult. And this is what Higgins was denoting. So Higgins moved around her body a little bit, moved around in the pen. We did some additional work. And by the end of what we call the piece of work, she was able to make a statement that was very true and honest and real and let that wall down. And he came all the way into her and then held her while she was crying. So the wall, I use the wall as a piece of work quite frequently, but it's the horse that brings it up, not me. They will approach and come into this stop and through gestalt we're able to help the person really drop it release it and get rid of it once and for all touched by a horse offers three comprehensive programs giving you the ability to have the career you've always dreamed about working in partnership with the magic of horses. Our equine facilitator program provides you with the skills to build a thriving business hosting group experiences with horses. 
Our Equine Gestalt This program prepares you to open your own private Gestalt practice in partnership with horses. And our Master Equine Gestalt This program builds your Gestalt skills both in and outside the round pen. All of our programs include in-depth live classes, business growth training, and a supportive community of herd members to collaborate with and learn from. Visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com to learn more about which program is right for you and your healing herd. So I guess during the learning process in your program, people will learn to recognize the oh, gifts yeah. of their horses. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we have lots of ways in which they figure that out on their horses. First, they learn what we're seeing with them, but then they, they definitely learn that in the program for sure. Or if you, more than that, because most people listening to this podcast aren't going to come through our program, more than that, if you are wanting to experience what we're talking about, you know, if you write to us, we will let you know which grad of ours, graduate or certified practitioner of my methodology is closest to you. Or if you have a specific need, we'll let you know how you contact somebody that works in that specific niche or specialty. So yeah, we, we make referrals every day out of here. It's what we love doing, giving our grads the opportunity to meet our clientele and do the beautiful work with them and experience this with a horse. So let's talk a little bit about equidetector because that's one of my favorites. I I coined the phrase equidetector. And what I mean by that is not truth or lie detector for what we would think of as the truth. It is really looking at a person's truth. And horses are very sensitive to a person's congruence and able to really tell if the person is telling themselves something that they believe. So if I'm thinking one thing and I'm expressing another with my mouth, but I feel a different in my heart, the horse isn't interested in connecting. But they have really specific behaviors that they do if they sense that the person is not congruent. And so that's another one that you can find out from being with our graduates in a session. They'll oftentimes have people state what they believe is their truth. And then our coaches are taught how to watch and recognize the behavior of the horse in the equidetector. So we love that. I have a little gypsy vanner mare here named Roulette that we've had since she was six months old. And she's just a little tigress on equidetector. She's seven now. And um, that's her favorite thing to do for sure. So a lot of different ways. Right. Did you also have a story about Africa? Oh, for the pantomime. Yeah, that I was sharing with you. Yeah, it's it's a powerful story. So my students all hear this story because I think it's one that describes a horse doing pantomime probably better than anything else I could put in words. I should write it up one day, I guess. This was a tremendous mare of mine named a victory seeker. We called her Tori. I actually had been the human partner of her grandmother, her mother, and her. So I raised, birthed her and raised her. I remember she came out of her mother, Dooley's Riddle, one very early morning and she was already nickering by the time her nose was 
out of her mare, you know, out of her mom. She was already talking. So she had a lot to say. Uh, she had been a, an incredibly successful Western Pleasure mare for me and Equitation mare and all of that. And then when we retired her from the show ring, she came to my healing herd and then showed me really who she was because she was a phenomenal healer for people. So I was doing a women's group in my arena in Boulder. I had 10 clients there and I had three of my students there as assistants and handlers to keep everything moving, to keep everything safe. And so lots of people saw what I'm about to tell you. It was hugely moving, uh, not a dry eye in the house. So in the work that I do, each client is given the opportunity to sit in what we think of as sort of the hot seat. So all the focus is on them, but it's not mandatory by any means. Definitely people can say, well, no, I'll pass. You know, I'll give up my my choice. It doesn't happen very often. Most people want to have that one-on-one experience. So this woman had not gone yet. I had already worked with the other nine over the two days. And so she stepped up and ended up saying, uh, I said, you, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, you can. And she said, no, I definitely do want to work with you. So she sat in front of me and Tori was in the round pen and Tori came over to the side of the pen to see her and and watch she and I. And the woman began to tell me that what she was interested in was figuring out something else she could do for a living because she was a therapist at the time. She was working with a lot of very serious clients and she felt really, really burned out. So I asked her, you know, what did you do before you became a therapist or what did you think you were going to do with your one and beautiful life? And she said, oh, I was a medical doctor. So that's not something you hear every day, a medical doctor leaving the profession of medicine. And so I said, so you you chose to leave the profession of medicine? She said, oh, definitely. I definitely did. I retrained as a therapist. Now I've been doing that. And I said, would you share with me a little bit more about your decision to leave medicine? She said, sure. It's a story that I've really only told my sister and maybe one or two people in my lifetime. At the time she was sitting in front of me, I'm going to say she was probably 60. I don't know if she ever hears my podcast, but I'm going to guess that she was just a little older than I was at the time. And Tori was just standing, just horsey standing, right? Back leg cocked next to the round pen, kind of listening. And then the woman started sharing this incredible story and Tori turned 90 degrees to the pen and put her ears up and heard every single word. It gripped her. She told me, she said, when I first came out of medical school, I decided I wanted to do something for humanity because my dream was to get married and have kids and the Mr. Wright hadn't come along. And so I thought I'm going to go and be a doctor uh, with a certain program that was working in Africa at the time. So she goes as a single woman, as a brand new doctor, and she goes to Africa and she's met by these other physicians, welcomed aboard. And she's there and she's seeing patients, natives and people that lived in Africa. And she's seeing them as her clients. And of course she's nervous. She's a brand new doctor. But what she was really struck by 
were the deplorable conditions these people were living in, in terms of water, clean water, and food, enough food. And the great drought had happened then, and there was a famine happening. I remembered, you remember the National Geographic magazines? Oh, yeah. My, yeah. my yeah. dad used to get that magazine. And I remember during the time she was speaking about, which was several years before then, 35 years or something before she was sitting in front of me, seeing the babies with the berry, berry bellies, the oh, swollen right, bellies right. and all the people starving in Africa. It was horrifying. And that's when she was there. So as a physician, <laughs> there wasn't as much she could do as a doctor. It was more what they needed was all the Peace Corps and the other people that came in and helped them with food. So she did what she could. She was there two and a half, almost three years. And during that time, she saw mothers of starving babies sitting on the desert sand and the babies were eating, literally eating the sand because they're hungry and the sand would you know, make them less hungry, but of course was hugely dangerous for the baby. So she'd go over and explain to the mom the best she could. You can't let your baby eat sand. And the mothers would look at her like, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? And so she remembered also that right before she left, uh, and one of the things that pushed her into leaving was she was seeing these mothers grieving the death of their infants and digging in the desert and making these sort of shallow graves in the Sudan desert and burying their children in these very shallow sandy graves. So it was a, a horrible, horrible event and a horrible story, and she was very uh, hurt by it but not as hurt as she was in this next part. She tells the head doctor that she's going back to the United States and uh, she had been there, like I said, two and a half, maybe three years of her life. And as she was leaving, his parting words were not, thank you. They were, I thought more of you than this. And it cut her to the quick. She got on the plane. She came back to the U.S. She got a job in an American hospital. And she began being a physician with a lot of experience, but <laughs> now she's in an American hospital. She was struck in the next two, two to three years of her life, she was struck by the medical waste in a U.S. hospital. So if a doctor or a nurse opens a three-by-three gauze bandage and what they needed was a four by four they throw the three by three in the trash and they grab it if the person's ready to get checked out of the hospital and there's half a bag of iv solution or lactated ringers or whatever on the pole they check them out and throw that away and all of these things were worth everything to her when she was in the sudan and seemed to not have a lot of worth in an American hospital, and she couldn't handle the waste and the guilt from what he said. So she went back, and now she's inexperienced. Now she's six years into being a doctor. She's still not married, still no kids, still no Mr. Right. So she goes back, and she becomes a physician there on the team, and they actually gave her her own sort of uh, responsibility area, her own village. And she told another story about a father who walked uh, 32 miles with his 11-year-old son who had been born with something called gastroesthesis. And that means born with your intestines outside of your body. And in America, they open that baby up day one, put the intestines back in, sew them up. It's traumatic for the family. Kid goes home. It's all good. But there... There wasn't that, especially in those years, you know, all those years ago. And so she, you know, what's she going to do with that? They don't have an OR and lots of trials and tribulations through that. But it was a much 
happier time because the drought was over and the rains had come. And so food was plentiful again. And so she wasn't dealing with starvation and all the problems that they had on her first tour. Instead, people were had enough food to eat and had enough water to drink. So they were doing a lot better. So then next, she's on a council of doctors and they're talking about this and talking about that and all the different things they need to do medically. And uh, one of the things that was discussed was vaccinations for measles. Measles had never been in the Sudan. There had never been a measles outbreak. Measles wasn't even known, but they were concerned about it. It was voted down. Everybody said, no, we don't need to vaccinate all these people right now for measles because measles isn't here. And during the brief time this poor woman was there, measles came through and 14,000 people, I think is what she told me. It was some incredible amount of people died from this terrible outbreak because they had no immunity to it. It wasn't something in their culture or anything else. So all of that death, all of that happening, she flew out of there after that epidemic was over and literally surrendered her medical license. Just emotionally, it was way too much, just way too much, and then became a therapist. So my horse, back to the horse. She's glued to this story. And I do believe that horses understand a lot of what we say, but they certainly understand the pictures in our mind. So she had pictures of from her memories and from her subconscious of starving babies and mothers, you know, burying their children and all of these different things. And that's what Tori could really tune into this woman's sadness, her heart, the pain in the story, and definitely understood a lot of what was going on. But I'll tell you this next part of what this horse did proved to me just how much horses do understand in this work when they tune in. So I asked her if she was comfortable going in the pen with Tori. And she said, yep, I know nothing about horses, but I've been watching this all weekend and I'd love to and it'd be great. So she goes in the round pen and I said, would you be kind enough to stand in the center of the round pen? So she went and stood the center. And Tori, instead of going and checking her out in the center, took her lip to the ground and moved it left and right. So if you're a horseman listening to me, you know when a horse is um, sifting through, uh, like say sand for a bite to eat, or you know they're sorting, that top lip is an amazing flexible thing that they can sort of wiggle back and forth and look for something to eat. So she was wiggling that lip, but she wasn't eating. And she wiggled her lip and she started walking the edge of the round pen. So this takes a while for a horse to take the edge of the round pen and take their lip all the way around the pen. So my students are looking at me and the other people that are there are looking at me like, what is she doing? You know, what's happening? So I asked the client, I said, what do you believe Tori is expressing or doing right now, if anything? And she said, I think she's rejecting me. And that broke my heart. And I said, well, in my world, horses are directly connected to the angelic realm and they don't do things like rejection. That isn't their jam. So let's just watch her a little bit. So Tori continues all the way around. She stops right where she started. And then she walks over to this woman. I'm going to say her name was Janice. It wasn't, but to protect her, I'll just say her name was Janice. So she walks over to my client, Janice. She takes her muzzle and she presses it against Janice's heart and her chest, just softly, but with intention, just presses it there and holds it there, looking her in the eye and just holds her nose there. Then she took her nose down to the ground, 
right there next to the client and mimicked eating. She wasn't eating, but she mimicked eating and bringing her head up really slowly. And she pressed her nose against her chest again and did that like three times. And I said, what do you, I knew what I was seeing, but I said, what do you see that this marriage offering you now? And she said, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, then Tori blew everybody's mind because she took her front leg and ergonomically and anatomically, I guess, the way a horse is built, when they're pawing the ground, we've all seen them paw the ground, they lift that front leg up and then it's faster coming down than it is when they're lifting up. So they kind of lift up and then boom to the ground and lift up and boom because their legs are heavy. So it's like a one, two, three, one, two, three motion. Well, that's not what she did. She lifted her front leg. She stretched it out as far as she could and she put her toe into the sand and she pulled back into the sand and she just kept doing that, pawing, but not pawing like you've ever seen a horse paw before, just a direct line. Well, I started crying because I recognized she was pantomiming. And so I said to her, I said, you know, my horse is showing you the deepest way she knows how, the understanding. She put her head down three different times, mimicking eating the sand. That's the part of your story that she wants you to know she heard and understood. And now she's digging a grave right next to you. And she dug a, a deep trench right next to this gal, several inches deep in the same line over and over and over. So of course the client Janice had tears streaming down her face. She was just so moved by what Tori did. We all were so moved by what Tori did to show her that. And the piece went on from there. But when Janice asked me, she said, why Why do you think your horse is pantomiming all this? Because she went on to do two or three more things. And I said, I think the circle she put around you to begin with, is that familiar? And the woman was so moved, she almost sat on the ground of the pen. She goes, oh my gosh. And I go, what? She said, that's the shaman, the medicine doctor in Africa would always have to be present when we were working. And uh, it was just part of what they did in the tribal needs. And before I could start my day of work, he always made a circle all the way around me on the earth, softly, slowly making this sacred space for me to do my work with my clients. So I said, so this mare did that sacred circle for you. She showed you the eating of the sand. She showed you her sadness to your heart. And she showed you the mother digging those graves. And she said, again, why would she show me this? I said, because I believe she wants you to know that cross species, this story is so powerful and you are so powerful to have witnessed it. And she's honoring, she's finding her way of honoring you for all of that pain and everything that you went through as a physician. The piece goes on, the funny part in the end, she comes out and she sits in front of me and she says, so my original question was, what should I do for a living next? And I said, well, number one, the serious answer is you should write this story up and become a public speaker on this story because it is powerful. And maybe there's a book about all these experiences for you. But I said, the short answer is, I would stop being a therapist, go to the closest like Hobby Lobby or something, get a job there and relax where the hardest question you answer all day long is where do you keep the acrylic paint? And she laughed so hard. And then, you know, I think that's a good piece of advice, but that's a pantomime. And I've got several of those pantomime stories, but that's one that always really touches my heart. So thanks for asking, babe. I know you hear that story over dinner sometimes when we're with people. Yes. So the pantomiming is 
pretty much to show gratitude to what the person has done. To validate, I suppose, to affirm and validate that what they just shared was not just understood by human beings, but is understood cross species. Gotcha. And other times it's to teach a lesson. I have another one I use in my training that is briefer than that one, but it's very powerful. Had a mayor uh, named 3030. She was loaned to me by Mark and Jan. Right. So she's loaned to me by Mark and Jan. Her uh, human partner had died of breast cancer and the mare was really depressed. And so Mark and Jan asked if I could take her into my healing herd for a while and see if she liked doing that. And she did. So one day we're working with this family and the family had a son had two sons. The younger son was in rehab from drug abuse and the older son was present with the mom and dad to work with me and another peer of mine. And halfway through the day, it was finally the older son's opportunity to go in the pen with the horse and to do some private work with me. So mom and dad are present. We're all watching everything. And this mare, he starts walking around the edge of the pen. And this mare walks over boldly and stops him in his tracks and pushed him pretty rudely back. So he's his back is flat to the round pen fence. And she looked him in the eye and she looked at me and she looked at him. And I said, 30, what are you showing me. She reached over to the metal pen next to him and she started licking, but licking obsessively. So the horseman in me always shows up first. So I think, is she missing a mineral? Is she cribbing? You know, all the horse stuff that you would normally think. But instead she would push him and again, kind of rudely, she'd shove him a little bit against the wall. Then she'd start licking, 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 licking. And then she'd look at me. And I think this mare is clearly pantomiming, telling me something. I got to put my thinking cap on. And he hadn't said a word when he walked into the pen. But at lunch, he had gone off to Subway by himself and then came back and joined all of us. And then we were doing this piece in the pen. So I watched this behavior on this mare. She wouldn't let him walk. She wasn't going to let him leave that spot. And I thought she looks like a cop busting somebody, you know, is what came to me in my intuition. So I said to him, I said, you know, if I didn't know better, I would say my horse is busting you on drug use. Are you high right now? And he sunk to the ground and started crying. He had gone out to use at lunch. And what he was so devastated about that his parents didn't know up until that moment was he was the one that introduced his younger brother to drugs and it was eating him up inside and he had been just just feeling horrific about it. His parents, the parents didn't even know that this young boy used drugs at all. He wasn't addicted, but he was carrying the guilt of what had happened to his younger brother and definitely had gone and got high over lunch because he knew he was going to have to confess to his parents and was really scared about it. So my horse was a DEA agent. She just busted his butt right there in the pen. Yeah. <laughs> An- another equi detector. Yeah. An- yeah. Another kind of detector, right? Yeah. <laughs> A different kind of detector for sure. For sure. For sure. Well, I want to make sure that we thank our sponsor again today, which is Hope Through Horses. And Hope Through Horses is a beautiful nonprofit. Uh, it is not part of our Touch by Horse organization. It is arm's length from us, but we greatly benefit from Hope Through Horses in many, many ways. If you feel called to, go to hopethroughhorses.com. They're 
a nonprofit, they're always anxious to have somebody donate to sponsor uh, tuition into our program. They sponsor people who can't afford the full session themselves to get the work that they need to get done. They support our graduates and they support this podcast. Thank you to Hope Through Horses. We're very happy. We're going to have Kelly Lamphere, who started Hope Through Horses, on for an interview nice, in the coming nice. weeks too, so yeah. everybody can hear her and hear her heart and hear what she's put together with her wonderful board of directors. So, well, thanks. I did a lot of storytelling in this version, I right? I love listening to them. Do you like my great. stories? Yeah, they're good, great. good. He doesn't always like my stories. That's not totally true, but he liked this one. <laughs> I like this today. So thank you for doing these with me, sweetheart. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate it. I love you too. See you next time. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Touched by a Horse podcast. If you'd like more information about anything we've talked about on the show today or our certification program, please visit our website at touchedbyahorse.com. That's touchedbyahorse.com. Or contact our office by phone at 303-440-7125. Also, be sure to keep up with us on social media. We're at Touched by a Horse on both Facebook and Instagram. See you around the barn and on the next episode.